Please be seated. So we return to the book of James this morning in our series through this great book. We come again to the first chapter of James. And as we do, I'm reminded there's a perspective on life that we must get right. The problem is that we are born with a bent toward getting this perspective exactly wrong. And we come by this quite naturally in that it was the pattern that our first parents adopted in the Garden of Eden. And every generation since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit is born seeing life in a disordered way. You will be like God. Satan lured Adam and Eve, enticing them to seek their sufficiency and their fulfillment within When they sinned against God, they broke His command and God confronted Him. What did they do? There they looked outside of themselves. They pointed away from themselves. The serpent, said Eve, the woman that you gave me, said Adam. And ever since, we are bent toward thinking that way. That salvation is found within ourselves and that the problems are located outside of ourselves. This message is sounded forth everywhere in our world if you'll tune your ears to hear it. Uh, If you don't tune your ears to hear it, it's coming in anyway. We need to recognize this at every turn. We are told that we possess an inner light. There is potential for good in every one of us and this good is hindered only by external forces so we're taught to realize our potential to trust ourselves to become all that we can be on the other hand we're taught to pin the blame for our weaknesses and failures on those who have wronged us in one way or another There's a victimization orientation that is very much a part of our cultural perception. If things are not going well, if you are not adjusted to life, if you are having problems, the first thing that the professionals will typically do is sit you down and find out who did you wrong, who messed you up. And the assumption, the understanding is if you were left alone and allowed to blossom, the good would come out. But somebody has gotten in your way. Do we not see this everywhere? As we continue forward in James chapter 1 this morning, the revered pastor of the church at Jerusalem turns everything upside down. His theme in this introductory chapter is what a life wholly devoted to God looks like. You remember last week we looked at three characteristics of a genuine follower of Christ. Think of these and how countercultural they are. But first, we rejoice in trials. We rejoice in challenges and difficulties because we know that God, in His sovereign purposes, uses those trials to build our faith, to strengthen us in Him. And so, in this weird way, we rejoice. 
as we go through trials. Little ones and big ones, every sort, every kind, because we know God will use it to build our faith in Him. Secondly, we orient our lives with singular devotion to God's counsel, even when it goes against everything the spirit of the age believes is best. Even when it may lead to poverty. Even when it may lead to a lack of popularity. We hear the word of the Lord and His counsel and we trust it. And thirdly, Another counter-cultural orientation is we celebrate humility. We celebrate humility. If we are in a humbled position, we exalt in that, knowing that God loves us and has identified us as His own. If we're in an exalted position, we look at humility. And we celebrate the fact that we are just like the flowers of the field that fade. James continues in his introductory chapter by helping us see straight on the location or source of good and evil. To see straight on good and evil. And here again, the followers of Christ will orient their lives in a distinctive manner in contrast to the way in which the world sees this order. We pick up the flow of thought by returning here to verse 12 and somewhat by way of review as we prepare to move into the remainder of this chapter Blessed, we read in verse 12, is blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now this verse concludes the preceding section, but also opens the way to what follows. The connection to the preceding section can be seen if you look across at verses 2 through 4 and compare here with verse 12. You see here a repeat of the word trials, a repeat of testing, and a repeat of steadfastness. So verse 12 kind of summarizes what has been said to this point, concludes that preceding section. And looking at it just a bit more here, we see it divine counsel. We are to recognize that we are blessed when we stand the test. God intends for us to remain steadfast under the trials and challenges of life. This is His counsel to us. Our perspective then is to be something along these lines. By God's grace, I am going to persevere through this trial by trusting God, by resting in His promises, by loving Jesus with steadfast loyalty to the end of this problem, rejoicing, knowing that God is building my faith. This is, of course, to follow the example of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, who said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done, who said in the end, into your hands, I commit my spirit in the midst of the most severe of all trials. This is his divine counsel to us and the divine promise we find here at the end of verse 12, for when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We will receive the crown of life, probably a figure of speech meaning the crown which is eternal life. 
Uh, did you notice there, it's, it's those who love him. That's not what you expect, is it? If, if you're tracking with what James is saying, I would expect that he'd say to those who trust him. Isn't that as you trust him through the trials? You endure through the trials. But he says to those who love him. And it reveals to us that love is the true motivation of the life of faith. One of the problems is that we constantly love things and we love people and we love goals that fail us. False gods. But when we love God, we rejoice to trust Him. And the result is eternal life. That is a quality of life that is eternal, not only in duration, but in its splendor and in its infinite worth. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death, which is not ceasing to exist, but spiritual separation from God. Let me ask you, have you ever tasted clobots? You ever had that? Are you salivating when I say clobots? You want to eat that? Have you tasted it? Well, of course not, because I just made it up. Uh, it doesn't exist. It's not a food. And you've got nothing there when I said that, right? I want to just for a moment talk to some of you. When I say eternal life, you pretty much have the same reaction. It doesn't really register. It's a word, clawbots, I can hear it, but it doesn't mean anything. I don't salivate. And when you hear the word eternal life, you respond pretty much the same way. It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't satisfy. I don't taste it. There's no satisfaction in that phrase, eternal life for you. The reason for this is that your soul is separated from God. You may not know it, or there may be a dull realization that there's something that's wrong, or perhaps a growing realization that there's something that's wrong. But when you hear eternal life, it doesn't register because you've not tasted it. All I ask just here, and and with great respect I say to you, know that eternal life is a quality of life that comes only as you become rightly related to God by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It won't come any other way. It's not going to come because you know facts. It's not going to come because you've attended church. It's only going to be realized as you come into right relationship with Him. That is through His death, as we have sung and as we have observed here this morning, His death paying the penalty of sin, His resurrection power over sin and death, so that the barrier between you and God is removed, you're reconciled, and you come to know Him. This is eternal life, the knowledge of God through Christ. And when you have that eternal life, there's joy. There's a reality there. There's a taste. 
so that when you sing as we have sung today, it deeply affects you. I have been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Christ and His gift of salvation to me. Now, there's a vital, vital qualifier here. We could read this the wrong way. Blessed is the one who perseveres or remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive this life, this enduring life. We might read that to say, by persevering under trials, I will earn this life. James himself will put that to rest in a few moments. But it is rather that steadfastly trusting God in the midst of trials is how genuine followers of Jesus typically orient their lives. Typically, not every day, not all of the time, there is failure, we must repent, but our general orientation is not to melt down with the trials of life. It's not to run away from God. It's not to curse the darkness. It is to persevere trusting Him. That is the typical, normal way that someone who has eternal life lives. They know that God is sovereign, that He loves us, that He cares for us, and they trust that. So don't think of it in terms of earning His favor by persevering through trials, but rather that this is the life to which a true believer is called. Now notice that word in verse 12, trials, verse verse 12, the same word is translated tempted in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. This word trials or tempted in the Greek is the same word. And what what we have to consider is the context to know exactly how to translate it. The relationship between temptation and trials is certainly a close one. And this perhaps one of the reasons why James sort of almost, there's a bit of a shift here that we have to be aware of and to catch because he's talking about trials external difficulties that come into our life and moves in verse 13 to consider temptation but the connection is probably much more close than we readily see when we do not respond to trials with steadfast faith in god those trials often morph into temptations So the very same trial can become a faith builder or a faith killer. The trial of financial trouble can lead me to trust God and get up with faith and confidence each day that He will provide, or it can lead me to steal and to lie. The trial of a troubled marriage may lead me to obey God or to respond with destructive speech and self-serving decisions. The trial of singleness may lead to a robust confidence in God's goodness or it can lead to self-pity or justifying sexual deviance or worse. In any event, James now counsels us to rightly locate the source of temptations to sin. And I could say it this way, the source of temptation is within us, not outside of us. Verse 13, the source of temptation is within us, not outside of us. Verse 13 says, whenever I am tempted to sin, I must know that God is not the source of my temptation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Imagine you're walking down a street in downtown Minneapolis, you pass an alleyway and you see a trash dumpster, and behind that trash dumpster you recoil to see a dead, big rat that's dead, decaying, and there's worms that are eating it. Pretty gruesome, right? There's a stench in the air, and you turn away in disgust. I want to ask you, are you tempted to eat that rat? You're not only not tempted, you could not be tempted. I mean, they could smear butter on the thing, and you're still not tempted, right? It's, it's, you could, it, deep fry it. Uh, you don't want anything at all to do with that. That, in a sense, is how God sees sin. He has never been tempted by sin, and He wants nothing to do with it ever. He cannot be tempted by such sin. Now, I realize the illustration falls short when it comes to Christ in His humanity and the susceptibility of humanity to temptation. This level of disgust, we, we have to qualify it, and there's some mystery in it of how this affects Christ. But just looking at it just from the perspective of how you would take the look on that, that rat and say, never could I be tempted to eat that. So it is with God in sin, generally speaking, and understanding. God has never found sin alluring, and He never will. Therefore, our loving Heavenly Father can never be the source of our temptations to sin. Any notion that God dangles sin out in front of us like bait is wrong, and, it, and as is any blame we might pin on God for our temptations. Oh, who does that? Blame God for your temptations? If I just had a wife... If I did not have this woman as my wife, if money was not so tight, if these circumstances were different, if my parents didn't have such ridiculous rules, are all subtle ways of blaming God. There's subtle ways of saying the world that God sovereignly orchestrates in my life is pitched against me and as Adam said, the woman you gave me, so we say the circumstances you have assigned are the reason why I sin. If it wasn't for this, I would obey you. Subtle ways of tagging God as the source of our temptations. Well, if God is not the source of my temptations to sin, I'm being taught that here, never think that way. No one should say when tempted, I'm being tempted by God. He cannot be tempted with evil. And he tempts no one. Then where does it come from? What is the source of my temptation? Surely this is where God will see us as victims of others who have made life difficult for us. But it's not the case, is it? 
Whenever I'm tempted to sin, I must know that God is not the source of my temptation. And verse 14, the temptation to sin is sourced in the desires of my own heart. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Lured. Greek word was often used to lure a fish from their hiding using bait, or enticed, the word often used in the context of trapping wild game. The truth is, when I am tempted to lie, to steal, to find sexual pleasure outside of marriage, to gossip, to hate, to pout, to cheat on my taxes, to shirk my duties, to become jealous or greedy, or to pursue selfish ambition, the problem is never with God. And it's never with other people, and it's never with bad luck. The problem is with me. Specifically, the problem is what I desire. The problem is rooted in what I want. This is vital, helpful counsel to us on two fronts. First, it locates the battle. It is an internal battle, not an external battle. Now that's not to say there's no external contributors to it, such as the demonic temptation that we encounter. But as James looks at it here, we can always know that the battle is internal, and we need to see it that way. But the second front that's helpful is more narrowly, it identifies the seed of sin as my desires. That's very, very helpful. And I would encourage you, learn to interpret the language of your desires. Learn to interpret that language by looking inside, not outside. It will be amazing to you in the midst of temptations and challenges how easy it is to point the finger at someone else. Some circumstance, some situation, some person, it's their fault. That's why I want to gossip. That's why I want to be angry. That's why I want to give up. It's because of them. It's because of these things. Learn in that conversation to turn inward and say, what do I want? What do I want? Right now, I must define my desires. So, if you're having marital problems, your temptations to sin are not rooted in your mate's ill behavior. These can certainly be contributing factors and they can certainly be very challenging. But the essence of the issue is rooted in what you want. If you're struggling with anger and frustration, the source is not other people or bad luck. The problem is rooted in what you want. This is perhaps easier to see in sensual temptations where we want to glut the flesh in some way. It's our desires Whatever it is, we need to know that this is where the battle is lodged. Here's the danger, verse 15 in all of this. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think this is the direction that James would take us. Why is he saying that the issue is your desires so that we fight our desires? So that we 
take on the battle there. Not pointing outward, but pointing inward and identifying what those desires are so that we can fight them, so that we can change them, so that we can repent of them, or whatever it is. But if we don't, he gives us this warning. Desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin brings death. When we fail to resist sinful desires, when the imagination contemplates the potential for sin, and the will says yes in sins of commission, or the will says no in sins of omission, we eventually act on those desires. And if sin becomes a pattern, it brings forth death. Not ceasing to exist, that's not what death is, but death is spiritual separation from God. So, And again, he's not saying that repenting of sin is how we avoid hell. The path leading to spiritual death has been barricaded by Christ's death in our place. But relationally, we can be separated from God for a time until we repent. Or one who does not know Christ as Savior, of course, is separated in their sin from God. For those who truly know Christ as Savior, a life of repentance is characteristic. Because where sin is entrenched and desires are allowed to give birth, the end result is death. Sin brings death. Again, all of this understanding what Christ has done, yet being very aware of the warning that is here. We must fight temptation in our desires. So the source of our sin is internal, not external. We're not fundamentally victims. We must take personal responsibility for our sin against the holy God, learning to bridle the desires of the heart. This is, again, a a reorientation, not to the inner light, not to the goodness that's within, but to the desires that can become corrupted. I learn to focus and read and translate and fight and repent as I deal with the desires of my heart, the battles within. So the source of temptation is within us, not outside of us. Verses 13 to 15. Secondly, the source of goodness is outside of us, not within us. Verses 16 and following. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, he says, verse 16. Don't be deceived to think that temptations come from God and that goodness comes from you. Don't be deceived. Here it is, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift Every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It comes down. Coming down from the Father of lights into our life. I think that in the ancient context, the Father of lights would most naturally be taken as a reference to the heavenly light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now the heavenly bodies mean far less to us today in a world driven by electricity. We just don't recognize the sun, the moon, and the stars in the same way that an ancient congregation would recognize them. For ancient peoples, these 
heavenly bodies were seen as utterly essential gifts from God, providing light and food. James is likely saying here that God is the creator of these heavenly bodies, but in contrast to them, there is in God no variation or shadow of turning. For ancient peoples, they needed these things to see by. They needed the sun to grow their crops, but even in the regularity of these heavenly bodies, the persistency of them, every day they could count on them being there, yet the moon wasn't always full. Sometimes the sun was covered by clouds. There was day and night waxing and waning. But in contrast to these givens, these regularities, in contrast, God is the never-changing source of all goodness. There's no variation. There's no shadow of turning. Whatever that means, however we take that phrase as he's thinking of the heavenly bodies, it's not true of God. And so we can say this, if it is from God, it's good. If it's good, it's from God. If it's not from God, it cannot be good. If it's not good, it cannot have come from God. Now, secularists in our day would laugh at this and say, let, let me explain to you how this works. You go back a thousand years and there's all kinds of things that people could not explain. And whatever they couldn't explain, they would just say, well, that's God doing it. But now with scientific knowledge, we have much greater explanations, and so it's pretty clear that God's not doing it. So we need to give some of these ideas up. Scientific discovery reduces the spaces in which we find things that we must credit to God because we can't figure out any other place to which to credit it. Well, I think... That thinking is entirely irrational. It's kind of like looking on the math test of a genius. And as you work at this math test, you find there's a few of the problems that you're actually able to solve yourself and figure out yourself. And since you're able to figure it out, it means he didn't take the test. That's kind of the thinking with God. Since we scientifically can figure things, something out, it means God didn't do it. There's no logic in that at all. The fact that we can figure something out, that there's scientific causation that we're able to understand, does not mean that God is not the author of those laws and of that history. Science may help us know how God did something. It does not prove that He was not there. Back to the context, God does not send temptation. What He does send is pure goodness. Can we think on this for a moment? It's so orienting and helpful. Every day of your life, every day of our lives in this world, God pours down upon our head blessing after blessing after blessing. on the good and on the wicked. He gives us light. He gives us air. He gives us health. He gives us food. He gives us shelter. 
God gives to us clothing and friendship and family and games and cars and sunsets and trees and rivers and lakes and seas. God gives to us humor and contentment, bodies that heal, the ability to reason and plan and laugh and cry and read and sleep and walk. Every day of our lives, God pours down blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, goodness flowing from His throne. It's all from Him. We're not self-made people. We are the recipients of unending goodness from God. And ultimate among God's gifts, it seems perhaps that James is saying, let, let me talk to you about the ultimate gift, verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. With all that God pours out in grace upon us, it is this as His people that He has brought us forth. A reference to the new spiritual life in relationship with God. We call it the new birth. It is a new identity in relationship with Christ. He birthed us. He brought us forth. He gave us life. How is this accomplished? By the word of truth. This is how we're given that life. It's by the word of truth. This refers to the written revelation concerning Jesus Christ or the preached message of Christ crucified to pay the penalty of our sins and risen to defeat death and sin. This message comes. We hear of our sin. We hear of what Christ has done and we're given new life. We're born again. We're given spiritual, regenerative life and existence. And this ultimate and mysterious gift of spiritual life is of His own will. Of His own will. Many, could I say most evangelicals in our day, put the emphasis on the will of man. And we do indeed exercise our will in choosing Christ as Savior. We do. But the Bible stresses that the ultimate cause is not my will, but God's. God's will is decisive. Do we see that here in verse 18? Of His own will He birthed us. It is only as God wills to save me that I have the power to choose Him. It's not true that since God chooses us, we have no say in the matter. That is not the case. It is rather that God chooses to rescue us so that we choose Him as our Savior. But it is of His own will that He chooses us for salvation. If I was drowning in the ocean and a boat of rescuers came to save me, and I got into the rescue boat and was brought to shore and to life and to safety and avoided death that day in a, in a tragic sea accident, in telling the story of my harrowing ordeal, I would not say that I chose to be rescued. I was out in a boat, in the ocean, it sank, and I want you to know I chose to be rescued. I mean, people kind of look at you like, okay, <laughs> I did choose to be rescued. When that lifeboat came, and the hand was reached out to pull me up into the boat, I took it. 
I reached out and I said, yes, I want to be saved. But as I think about that event, I don't go around telling people I chose to be saved today. What I look at primarily is there were rescuers in that boat that left the security of the shore, came out to the sea, and they found me, and they chose to rescue me. And so it is, I believe, with our salvation. Just the way we think about it. Did I choose to get into the lifeboat of Christ crucified and risen? Yes, I chose to. But the emphasis falls on the Christ who left heaven's glories to come to this earth and to rescue me. It's of His will that I have new life. It's of His initiative, of His decision to rescue me from my sin. And it's in that that I rejoice. It's that that I celebrate in song. So I'll rejoice for the rest of eternity that I reached out and took the hand of rescue. But I will rejoice most and ultimately that it is of His will that He brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we become a kind of first fruits of His creatures, probably referring to the consecration to God as His children, but it may also speak of our redemption as a paradigm for the universal redemption that is yet to come. We are the first fruits of His creatures. He's going to fix it all. And we're the start. Right now, those who have received the new birth in Christ. In any event, this passage orients us away from our natural bent to interpret our problems as originating outside of us and looking internally for the solution. Again, James turns everything on its head. The way that people like to think, the way we naturally go about life, our problem is fundamentally internal and the solution is external. Sin emits from the desires of my heart. But blessing and goodness descend upon us from the Lord. And this is why, in the last point last week, we rejoice in humility. Because we are always recipients. We are always those that are receiving the grace and the goodness of God all day long through eternity for His people. I cannot offer pointed personal counsel to each one, nor would I even have any knowledge. But we must certainly say, in light of these truths, that it is vital that each one of us considers. Are you running from sin? Are you pointing the finger to external circumstances or to other people who are making your life miserable? Are you looking away from those desires where sin is truly rooted in your heart and looking elsewhere? Today it's time to come back and to say, what do I want and does that glorify God? And if not, to repent and to turn from sin. There's great help in getting located properly when it comes to sin to defining what the issue really is and responding rightly. The issue's in my heart. The issue's my own desires. And today is a day of repentance and turning. No longer pointing fingers. No longer making excuses. No longer looking outside at all these things that make life hard. But looking within and taking responsibility. 
And today as well, in this orientation, is a day of thanksgiving for every good gift in our lives. There's kind of that, I can't think of what to call it, but a little, it, forgive me if this offends anybody, but that little bit of a, a cheesy song, Count Your Many Blessings. It, I don't know what else to call it. It's a little strange. But count your many blessings. See what God has done. You know, we may not sing it a lot. It may be a little bit strange as a song or outdated. It's good advice. It's amazing what happens when you stop and consider the goodness of the Lord in your life. And I know for me, a lot of times, this is a helpful project on the way home. Because on the way home in the car can be a time when I can count all the problems and the trials and the difficulties and the things that didn't go my way. But there's a discipline of reviewing the blessings that God sends down on our life. This isn't just some tradition of once a year at Thanksgiving thanking God. This is a pattern of life for one who has been made alive in the Spirit of God to review day in and day out the blessings that God pours down upon us. And how cheap and how small it seems when in the face of all of those blessings, all we recount, all we count, are our trials. Every good gift is from above. Every good gift that God pours out into our lives comes from the Lord. And we should recount them. We should think of them. We should consider what God has done. And as we gathered today around the Lord's Supper, it's interesting that word that many uh, more liturgical churches tend to use it, but it's a good word. They speak of the Eucharist, which means what? Thanks. It means thanks. To render thanks. The ultimate gift as we gathered around this table is Jesus Christ. Of God's own will, He gave us new life. And in that new life, He is the ultimate gift in this life and in the next. So we, from the depths of our heart, give thanks. Looking up to Him as the source of goodness and looking within to define the source of sin, repenting and rejoicing in Him. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to this end, for we need it. We need Your counsel. We need Your hand of direction. We need to respond appropriately. We're thankful for the frank words on sin the responsibility that we have to identify the source within. I pray, Lord, that there would indeed be true progress forward as we respond to this counsel. Lord, I thank You for the new life that we have in Christ and for the blessings that flow from Your throne to us each day of our lives. We pause here to thank You and to praise You I pray that there would be a pervasive sense as we leave this place of this goodness. For those who have never tasted it, I pray that today 
you would open their eyes and permit them to taste the goodness of Christ crucified and risen. I ask that they would come to saving faith in Jesus, even today, as we leave from here, that they would seek counsel, that we would be able to pray together, talk together, read the Scriptures together, and that some might come to saving faith in Him. To this end we pray, giving you thanks for Christ our Savior and for new life that you've given us in Him.